0: Would you open your Bibles tonight to 1 Samuel, chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, and verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, But the Lord looketh on the heart, or the Lord looketh upon the heart. I would suppose it's common knowledge to everybody here. After years of going to church, you accumulate common knowledge that God knows everything, that there is nothing about a human being that God doesn't know all about. He knows from the hairs of your head, To the length of days, he knew you before you were born, and it is appointed a man once to die. So he has made the appointment of your birth and your death. He is in charge of all things. There's not a thing that he doesn't know. And concerning all of that, there's nothing that we can conceal from him. I think all of you know that, that he knows the thoughts and the intents, the motivations of your heart Nothing is hidden from God. We are all like an open book, open and exposed unto God's ever-seeing eye and ever-hearing ears, not a thing that, that we can hide from him. Therefore, all of us have a testimony to God that he knows about. We all have a testimony with each other, don't we? I've been here for a long time. When I'm 79 years old and I'm here... I will have been here half of my life. I figured it up today, so you wouldn't think I just came up with that. I could honestly say this, that in all of these years of standing here and watching and talking and meeting and greeting and picnicking with and so forth, every one of you has a testimony to me. There is a way in which I know you. And if somebody were to ask me about you, Depending on (laughs) who it was or as long as it wasn't a police officer, I could tell them quite a bit about you. I wouldn't tell them everything, I know, because some things would just not be worth telling. But I know something about all of you. I don't mean privately. I mean just being around you. I evaluate you, and you do me. We do each other. We can't all run around with each other all the time, but we see each other from time to time in church and other ways. And we form opinions. We often watch each other when things are going on. I do that a lot. I've been in airports and malls and just places where you're sitting in a room and you watch people. You see a lot of things, but you don't know anybody as well as you would like in a church sitting. When you see people and you talk to people and you have a chance to have conversations, you hear things and so forth. Everybody has a testimony. Everybody has a way that they are and that way that they are seen and a way that they are known. We all do. I want to talk about five testimonies tonight, because we all have five of them. There's five ways in which you're known, and they're all important. For example, your first testimony is your testimony to the world. Now, we live in the world Chances are you have a job in the world, or as a businessman, you work in the world. You can't go out of it to make money. You make it here. This is where we live. And therefore, you are known and evaluated by those in the world that you work around. They know quite a bit about you. They've heard, maybe heard, that you're a Christian, or that you've said something about God or about the Lord on the job site, and they've Begin to watch you, begin to pay attention to you because people have this knowledge, this common knowledge that's in the world that if you're a Christian, you are different, you're above reproach. Now we should be. A lot of people know that we should be, but they don't always try to live above reproach. And so the people of this world that you work around who hear you laugh at whatever you laugh at, they know whether you like jokes, they know whether you got a little problem. They know that if a lady walks by somewhere, somebody that's too lookable walks by and you look at other people as they walk by to see what their reaction is. I've seen people, you know, kind of turn around, you know, and look like that there. I said, Bonnie and I saw a, a fellow take a picture of a girl one time and she walked past. He Buddy elbowed him and he turned around and took a picture of her as she went by. Well, see, he has a testimony. I don't want him calling my daughter to, you know, to go out with her. Because I have evaluated him from his actions, what he did. He didn't have to say a word. Because what he did speaks a whole lot louder than what he would say. But I have an evaluation of him. I have an idea of what he thinks about and what he would try to do if he had a chance. And this is kind of his testimony to me. Well, we all have one. And like I said, the places you work. If you're a boss, how you treat the people who work for you how you conduct yourselves around them, whether you're fair or not, or whether you play favors. People know that. And every one of us here tonight who are Christians, we have an obligation to God, wherever we are, to live in a way that testifies to what we've been taught. That while we once would have said what you just said or laughed about what you're telling, or whether we would have looked at what you just saw, since we have become a Christian... We no longer do that. We are able to do that, but we won't tolerate ourselves doing that anymore, and we change. And the world who used to know you one way, and I can speak from personal experience, the world who used to know you one way, and your testimony was, he's a gob. He's a good old boy. He's just one of us. You know, he'll go out and drink with you and talk. We laugh. You know, he's just one of us. But then they heard about your conversion, and they all watch you, don't they? And as soon as you talk about Jesus or God or you say something about the Bible says or you disagree with some dumb statement because as a Christian, so and so and so they begin watching you. They look at you. They know if you're honest. They know if you steal things, take things off the job site that aren't yours, whether it's just a company pen with their name on it. You didn't ask for it. It's not yours. You can't just take it when you want it. Or... Whether you take stuff off the job site like nails or hammers. Bonnie and I both know a guy that built his house off stuff he stole from the railroad company. He did. He built his house. He bragged about it. He would dragged that stuff off of there and by the truckloads built himself a house off of stuff he stole. Now, does he have a testimony? <laughs> At the time, I didn't do that kind of stuff, but it didn't bother me. It bothered me, but it didn't bother me that much. I ran around with him. We'd talk. That was when I was in another city teaching school a long, long time ago. But that's just testimony. I don't know if he's still like that or not. He might be. But he located himself with me by the things he did and relished himself in. That was cool, he stole all that stuff, he never did get caught, in that something? And they also know in the world if we call ourselves Christians, whether or not we're hypocrites. Because they're waiting for you to make a little mistake waiting you to laugh at the wrong kind of a joke or just glance in a direction you shouldn't glance or react in some way that lets them know, well, you, all that Christian stuff, behind all of that, you ain't no different than you ever were. I know what that life is about. I've been around it, and I've heard about it. There was a fellow I went to church with. Then the days I got saved, there was this fellow that was in our church, and he got real hungry for the Lord. One night he stopped us and he said, I want to know what's going on here. About half angry, acted. I want to know what's going on here with you all. So what are you talking about? He said, he said, now you all been getting together and been going out of town or going to Louisville or something. And y'all coming back, y'all meet together, you're always laughing, always having a good time. What's going on? We said, Well, it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's that? Come on in, we'll talk to you about it. So later on, this man got filled with the Spirit. He did all of that. Then I mentioned his name once in some part of town I was in. Ran into somebody. Was talking to him about how the church was doing and, you know, about God's pouring out his Spirit on a bunch of people there. And just the other night, and I mentioned this guy's name. And he said, who? And I mentioned his name said, he ain't no Christian. Now, this is something new. And I thought, well, I, it seems to be. I mean, as far as we can tell, he is. He said, "I work with him," and he began to tell me about this guy. You can't get along with him. He's rude, and I can make up a bunch of stuff. Now I don't remember all the details about the story, but you know, he was rude and he was unkind and he was moody and just not fair and angry. Fly off the handle real easy and difficult being around him was cranky, and I thought. Well, that's not the guy that I know. But I realized as years went by in my life, and I began to know a lot more people, that it's one thing for you to be what you are right now in here. But when you get out there in the world, somebody knows you not the way you are here because they're not here. But they know you the way you are from eight to five every day. They know what your conversation is about. They know if you're a liberal or conservative. Or whether you want to, I'll tell you one thing, they know if you're like that. Because you see, that's your testimony out there. That's what you carry with other things. That's what you carry out of here, out there. And that's the way you are known. They see you that way, and that's how they evaluate what you believe. The church you go to, what you're hearing in the church. If it's not changing your life, and you're one way here, and you're somewhere else out there, they know you're not a Christian. They know you want to be one or you like to act like one, but you're really not one because the way they see your life unfolding out there, you're really really not a Christian. That's one testimony that all of us have. Another testimony that we all have is the one we have with our friends. Now, we may know a lot of people. Not everybody is your friend. Now, by friend, I mean somebody really close to you. I mean a companion. Somebody that I choose to run around with and confide in and share with, they know my life too. Let's take church picnics and things. When we're around our friends and people that we like to be around and people that we choose to be around, we have a testimony with them. They know if we're really friends or not. You see, a friend is somebody who doesn't try to take advantage of you doesn't insist on you doing it their way all the time. They're not intimidating. They're not threatening. You're comfortable around them. They won't hurt you. They're not going to see you mess up doing something. You drop something on your toe and, oh, and they won't go out and say, I "Tell you, I hurt my heart. They won't do that because they're friends. One of the things a friend does is to protect a friend. If somebody says they're your friend and goes out and talks about you or talks bad about you or shares stuff about you, they're not your friend. You think they are, but they're not. Turn to the book of Proverbs for just a moment. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 9. Proverbs 17 and verse 9. Another thing about a friend is a friend will come to your aid. They'll stand with you. They may be in bed to sleep with all their kids, and you're knocking on the door at a late hour. A friend will get up and help you. A friend will call you a friend. They may not want to get up. So and so, yeah. I'm stuck in the ditch. Where are you, Frankfurt? It's snowing a foot an hour. And it's five degrees outside. And they got enough battery life to finish a conversation on your phone nobody else. Friend, you'll start your car. Let me tell you something, not all your so-called Christian friends would do that. I just can't do it, man. I, 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 I'm sorry, call AAA or somebody. See, I wouldn't call anybody. I, there's very few people that I would call. If I was in a bind, there's only a few people that I would call because I can make phone calls to people that would probably drop whatever they're doing. They wouldn't like it, but they will come and help me. Now, I wouldn't ask everybody else to, but there are people that I would ask to, and I know there's people that would ask me to do that. That's what a friend is. That's what a friend is for. Proverbs 17 and verse nine: He that covers a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth the matter separateth chief friends. That's what gossip and slander does. When we call ourselves companions and friends and we talk about each other. I mean, talk bad about each other. We say things about others, even if they're true. It didn't need to be said. He that repeats a matter separateth chief friends. And then in verse 17, a friend loveth at all time and a brother is born for being stuck in a ditch. (laughs) Or adversity. I think one of the ways that God tests us to see just how much we do love our brother or a sister, one of those uncomely parts of the church that have nobody else to call but you, is when things like this happen and you're busy, and you're called upon to unbusy yourself to go do for somebody what they cannot do for themselves. And you feel this inward tug at your heart as an obligation unto God, for as you have done it, Under the least of these, God says, you've done it unto me. And God is able to bring those scriptures to your mind. You ever had that happen? You don't want to do it, but God floods your mind with scriptures you didn't know you knew? It's time to go. But that's what a friend would do. That's why they call you to help. That's why we depend on each other. Because that's what friends do. That's what friends are for. Now, your friends know you, whether you can be dependent on or not. They know if you fly off the handle easy. They know if they have to tread lightly around you. You have to avoid certain subjects because if you don't, your friend will be upset. That's not really the way you get along with each other. You know, when we carry a cross, when we have this cross life, the cross is where you crucify everything that is not like God wants out of your personality, your old ways of doing things, of expressing your feelings and of, your actions and reactions. When you begin to get some light about that's not right, but you feel like doing it, you put that on the cross. In this way, we become to each other the kind of people with each other that we should be. Laying down your life for your friends, as he said in John 15. Laying down your life for your friends means exactly that. God puts a lot of value on who he put beside you in the church. There's other people in the world besides you and me. And God doesn't set you always in a church with people that are like you and that you really want to be with. He sets whoever he wants there. And he expects you to love that person. Jesus said to love others as I have loved you. That's an everlasting love. Past finding out. To be willing to esteem others as better than yourself and to seek the well-being of others before your own self. In the New Testament, some of them sold everything they had just so the people who lost everything by becoming a Christian so they could have something to eat and a place to live. They cared about them that much because they were their friends. They were companions in the Lord. They didn't choose to be friends. God made them friends. God put them together. The people he wanted is who he put here. You like that? That's right. He put whoever he wanted here, and you have to learn to love them. It isn't hard when you let Jesus do the loving. It just isn't hard. Proverbs 16 and verse 28. Again, a froward man, a stubborn, hard-headed man sows strife. A whisper separated chief friends. That went with the first verse or the second verse that we used. See, friends don't do that. And think of this. Every time we do evil or bad to each other, we're not friends with that person. When we keep remembering of harm done a long time ago by somebody in the church and at various opportunities in the year, we bring it all up again and tell somebody what somebody else did to them once, that person's not your friend. And it's sort of a way of showing that there's no forgiveness there. How could you be friends with anybody you wouldn't forgive? You couldn't be. You'd be in the same room with them. I know of a case I was told this. I assumed it was true, that two men that I knew one of them, the one of them's died, I knew them both. Knew them both fairly well, enough, enough to carry on a conversation, talk to them on a first-name basis. These two men were deacons in a Baptist church. And one of them one time thought the other one had taken advantage of them on a deal and would not give a refund, a kickback, or explain or something. Anyway, so one refused to talk to that person and never talked to him again until one of them died. He died with that in their heart. I think not only is that not right, but somebody didn't teach somebody something. You can't do that. I mean, forgiveness goes with friendliness. And if you want a friend, you have to show yourself friendly. You can't cower in a little corner and wait till somebody sees your little precious need and come. oh, what's your best? You've got to make yourself a friend. And if you want people to love you, you love other people. If you want people to be friendly with you, be friendly with other people. If you want a close friend, let them be a close friend. Let God make out of you what you want. Do unto others. As you'd have others do under you, of course. Your friends know if you're stingy and tight. You know the old story about two or three guys go out to eat, and the meal's five or six bucks, and oh, I'll pay for it. But man, my wallet's stuck. I can't. I can't get that. Oh, you are gonna pay? Oh, okay. Well, just oh, okay. Well, where do you get it out? You want to help? You here? Somebody help me get this wallet out. Of, get this wallet out of his pocket. Well, there wasn't even $5 in that wallet. Thing about it is, that's your testimony. That's the way you're known. That's the way people have learned the kind of person you are. And sometimes people avoid people like that. We shouldn't. But if you know somebody might try to take advantage of you, and I don't think they were trying to, but I'm sure there are times that people would, well, you just sort of stay away about if a person knows you're moody? Boy, I tell you, they're fun to be around, but some days, I don't know what side of the bed they sleep on, but if they get out on the wrong side, oh, man, they're a terror by night. They're an arrow by day. You can't get along with these people. Isn't it true we should not be like that? Then why are people like that? Because they have never yielded to the cross. I'm easily offended. I want to love people and talk about love, but when it doesn't go my way, I'm easily offended. See, people know us by how we are. They know if we're tight or we know if they're moody. They know if we're stingy. They know if we're hypocrites. They know that. You would know that. You may not know how tight somebody, because I'm not around a lot of people, and you're not either. I mean, around them all the time to know that, but there are people that we know that that's part of their testimony. I remember when a guy when I first heard about a guy came. Okay, he's not here anymore, but so y'all can relax. And somebody said he's the tightest man I ever saw. He's the tightest human being. That was prejudged, and when he got here, I kind of watched for that. And one day I saw it, and I thought, man, he is tight. That doesn't make him not a Christian. It just means that he hadn't yielded to the influence of God in that area yet. And maybe he will. And then his testimony wherever he is now, if he even believes in going to church, maybe people will see him differently. That would be a good thing. But we all have a testimony. The world knows us in a certain way. Your friends know you in a certain way. Let me tell you a third testimony that you all have is your family. Your family. Nobody knows you better than your family. Who would know me, as far as human beings are concerned, who would know me better than my wife? Better than my children? I have a testimony when they were all at home. I had a testimony with all of them. They knew dad in a certain way. They know mom in a certain way. I knew them in a certain way. I know her in a certain way. She has a testimony to me. I have a testimony to her. I have a testimony to my children. My children have a testimony to me. I can tell about each one of my children. I can tell you good traits about them and things that need to be refined. But I can't say a whole lot about what needs to be refined because, you know, I'm still in the process myself. But we have testimonies. All of us do. I am known by my family in a certain way. Take, for example, the spiritual family, the spiritual husband or wife. When the husband is super spiritual, if he's had a legitimate experience with God and he begins to live at home in a different way and starts making all kinds of adjustments and starts trying his best to live right and says he's sorry when he falls a little bit and everybody knows he's trying, he will gain the respect from his family, from any and all wrongs he's ever committed. They will forgive him because of the influence that God is making on him and his attempt to live that way in front of the hardest place to live your testimony, which is at home. If you can live your testimony, your Christian testimony at home, you can live it anywhere. Because nobody knows the ins and outs of your life better than your mom and dad or your brothers and your sisters. The people you grew up with and the people you're growing up with and people who are raising you. Nobody knows you better than they do. And the home is the toughest place, I think, the toughest place to live your testimony. Before Christ came into your life, you were a certain way. You might have been a sassy child, a rebellious child. That's the weakness of your parents. You might have been a rebel. You might have thrown fits, talked loud, fought. Rebelled at the idea of having to wash dishes or clean your room? I mean, come on. Why would anybody ever want a kid to clean a house or pick up clothes or maybe wash them? I mean, let alone fold them up when they got done. (laughs) Surely not put them away. I mean, come on. (laughs) Then you get saved. And you still like that, except now there's a greater influence in your life, and you start to go, (sighs) huh? And this little thing comes in and says, I, I, I don't think God wants you to do that anymore. I don't think God wants you to act that way anymore. I don't think God wants you to talk that way anymore. I don't think God wants you to be like that anymore. The hardest place to do that is one brother to another brother, one brother to a sister, a sister to a sister. I mean, the hardest people to manifest your redeemed life in front of are your siblings. See, I don't have to ask you if you're saved. I could ask your brother or your sister if you're saved. I could ask your mom or your dad. I don't have to ask a man if he's saved. If he's married, I'll ask his wife. Or if I want to know whether or not she's saved, I'll ask her husband. If I want an opinion about the genuineness of a person's life, I'll ask those in the family about her. Is he really like that? Does he live like that all the time, or is he just preaching? Are those kids that nice all the time, or are they just polished out in public? Public polish. Or are they threatened by their parents that if they don't do right, they're going to get beat? You see, if a child really gets saved, their parents will know it. Their family will know it. If something really has happened in your heart, your mom and dad will know it, if I'm talking to a youngster. Your parents will know it because you change. I don't believe in being sick and tired. I know you get weary and not feel good. I'm getting weary and not feeling good about. (laughs) About this kind of Christianity which tolerates all this kind of stuff. You know, you can be one thing somewhere else, but you gotta be this way here. Folks, if you're a Christian, changeless Christianity is not of God. If God has saved you, God will change you. You are changing, others will notice. You cannot hide it because your life becomes like a candle that is on a hill. Like you take the bushel off the lamp and there it is, your light is shining. You're not just a good guy who goes to church but still, you know, drinks a beer and cuts up and yaks about all the evil that's in the world like a bunch of whatever hoodlums. You're different. You change. I have a right to expect you to change. change don't I? Your mother and father have a right for you to change. A lady named Mrs. Smith one time, she had a daughter named Teresa. She was here. She wouldn't mind me telling this. A lovely child. She was a sophomore in high school. I guess she's as old as I am now, but really a gifted kid. I mean, she really, a fine young lady. We used to go out witnessing all the time, and she was good at it. We'd knocked on a 1,000 doors, and she would pass out tracts and go to malls and hospitals, everywhere they could get in and, and give tracts to people, and she was good at it. And we were gone quite a bit during the week. We had school, and then at night we'd meet a little bit for a Bible study somewhere. Then we'd go witness on the street or knock on doors or something. And Teresa was always just eager and zealous, always happy, always happy. One day I ran into her mother on the street, and uh, I knew her, but not real well. But I said, well, hi, Ms. Smith. How are you today? She said, fine. Uh, can I talk to you about something? And I thought, well, sure. Well, maybe she wants to get saved. Where's my Bible? Yes. She said, would you talk to Teresa? Teresa. I said, is there a problem? She said, well, she's kind of become difficult at home. I thought, how can this be? Her mother and dad wanted her to stay home a couple times. Well, she said, I'm serving the Lord now. Whoops, whoops. And she got up too late one morning to clean up her room and didn't clean it up, and she came home and then made a deal about cleaning it up. Whoops. So she started telling me some of these things, so I cornered her at school one one day. I said, Teresa, can I talk to you? I said, yeah, we got a problem. Well, I said, your testimony is not good at home. Well, you know, but how, there's so many things I also, no, no, no. Before you take it to Jerusalem, you've got to fix it at Joppa. You can't be one way here that you're supposed to be in front of your parents and demonstrate to your unsaved father and probably your unsaved mom that this is the change that God can make. And then when all the time you're at home, you're throwing a fit, you're in opposition to them, you won't clean up your room, you're not doing what you used to do. That's not a good testimony. That doesn't make everything else that we're doing, our little Bible studies and, and the singing and witnessing, that doesn't mean a hill of bees to her parents. It ain't making her a better child. She's not that sweet kind of Christian girl she ought to be at home because she's different now. We have no influence over her anymore. So you, know, you make some hard decisions. Say, I don't want you here every night we're going to meet. You come to the Bible study, but then I want you to go home. You go home with your mom and dad. You get yourself established at home before you come out here and change the world. Why don't you get yourself changed at home first? And until you get that straightened out, you're not qualified. You have not qualified yourself to go out here and do all this other stuff because you haven't fixed things at home yet. That's a spiritual child thing. How about the spiritual wife? She goes to church. And she gets so saved, she gets filled with the Holy Ghost three times in one meeting. I mean, she gets a triple dose of all. And she comes to church, she's got her Bible, and she's on the front row. I don't mean anything but front row, but she's in the loop. This didn't happen, I'm making this up now. So one day I run into her husband. Brother Hamilton? Yes. What's going on over at that church? My wife has become a dog since she's been going to that church and got religion. I'm making this up. What do you mean, whatever your name is? He said, well, you know, all she wants to do now is preach at me. I went to bed last night and there was stuff all under my pillow and she put all these tracks under my pillow and all these Bible verses under my pillow. She walks around mumbling in some language I can't understand tells me I'm going to hell every five minutes. What happened to my wife? I think he's got a legitimate complaint. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. I think he's got a legitimate gripe. 1 Peter chapter 3 to the spiritual woman it says this. Verse 1. Likewise you wives be in submission To your own husbands. Now plural there doesn't mean she has two or three of them. Husbands is an encompassing word, meaning husbands in general. Wives is plural and husbands is plural. Likewise, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the behavior or the manner of life or the conversation of the wives. Now conversation doesn't mean preaching. It's a word which describes a manner of living, a manner of presentation of yourself. It's how you act and function in front of other people. It's a manner of life. It says that they may also, without the word, think of that, be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste manner of life, coupled with fear or reverence for God. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning and a plating of the hair or wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even in the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. A meek and quiet spirit. That's the evidence of an illumined wife with an unsaved husband, that this is God's way to bring him into the kingdom. It's not by all these other things. She may be prompted to say things to him. If a man asks his wife, what do you all believe about stuff? Y'all meaning us, y'all. Well, What do you all believe about this? That's a chance to talk. She doesn't have to say, well, let me get my Bible. She just can simply in conversation say, well, we believe in such and such and such and such. Well, how do you know if she said, well, we don't always know. We, this is what we're taught. This is what the Bible says. It's not what we believe at the church as much as what I believe about what the Bible says. That's the right way for any answer. It's not the church. It's me. It's what I believe. It's my convictions. He said, well, you've been awful good around here lately. You've been just real nice and sweet and bringing me coffee in the morning and you've been putting up with my uh, antics. She says, well, I'm trying. and quiet. I'm just trying. There's times I would love to hit you right in the face with an egg in the morning. And there was a time I would have told you how I feel about you throwing your socks around the house and burping after eating all that kind of stuff. But you said, you know, I'll let God deal with you. I'm just going to quit trying to do all those ugly things I used to do. I just want you to be saved in whatever way God wants to do it. So I'm just trying very hard to show you that I want to be the kind of woman that God wants me to be, the kind of woman that you deserve if she's a Christian. If that doesn't give him something to think about, he's hard. Because I think any woman that would say something like that to a man in a nice, quiet, gentle way gives him something to think about. But if she's always prophesying to him, if she's always preaching at him and hollering at him, like one night this lady came to church years ago back in Indiana. She came to church one night, and her husband finally came with her. I think I was teaching it. And I said, anybody have anything you want to share tonight before I get started? I said, yes, i just called her Leona. I don't know anybody named Leona. Yes, Leona. I stood up. I just want to thank God that my husband's here and, and believing God's going to save him. And I'm thinking, oh, because you know what he's probably going. Oh man, why did I come? Because now everybody's looking at. Well, actually, everybody's kind of going. Oh man, Leona, that was that's bad. We want that to happen, and you are technically right, but boy, you're wrong in all the other ways. And I don't know if he ever came back or not. But, you know, that's like if you had a super spiritual father, husband, daddy that prophesies in the church and then comes home at night and just growls and hollers and yells. Well, something's wrong in the connection. But, you see, that's your testimony at home. And Somebody said, boy, your daddy's full of the Holy Ghost, isn't he? I said, well, he might be at church, but when he's at home, he's not exactly that way. Well, what do you mean? Uh, he ain't no different than he ever was. Uh, he's still got his favorite channels, and he's still got his beer in the refrigerator, and he's still you no know, different than he ever was. That's his testimony. That's what he has conveyed to other people. This is the kind of person I am. Holy, 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 and then you get out of the house, and I'm something else. See, you got a testimony that's bad. It's foul. It's not good. And this is why sometimes kids don't respect their parents' religion. It's quite often the reason that parents don't respect their children's conversion because they don't see any change. One of the things that makes our testimony what it should be is change. Don't we sing a song that one part of it says, I'm not the same person that I used to be. Don't we sing that? (laughs) I'm not the same person that I used to be. Sometimes it's slow going but I'm working on it. Youngsters at home, parents know if you're trying. They know if you're not trying. Or they know if you go to church. If I say, "Are you a Christian?" Yeah. And then you go home and you're just as sloppy and inconsistent as you ever were, you're not a Christian. Can I say that? You're not a Christian. No, you aren't either. You're probably a nice person. You're probably a decent person. You probably have a high level of morals to be commended. But Christianity is not just a high level of what the world approves of. Christianity is a changed nature. is seen in a changed life. And everything about you that used to be gives way to the power of Christ in you. It's my sermon on the indwelling Christ. And you begin to be affected by him. You yield to him. You trust in him. And and as you begin to partake of what he's teaching you, you begin to make application of it. And people see it. That becomes our testimony to each other. That's why we trust people. That's why we trust our children. That's why we don't trust our children. That's why children respect their parents. That's why children don't respect their parents. God makes all the difference and can be made, but if he's not allowed to make that difference, then it was for nothing. Let me give you a fourth testimony tonight. It's the testimony your church knows you by. Your church. I started out tonight by saying, you know, I've been here for all these years, and I know all of you in a certain way. All of you, any of you and all of you. Some things are good and some things I don't know. Some people are keeping an arm's length. Some people I wouldn't mind being behind me. We are known because we are together. We know how faithful we are in attendance, for example. We know because we have often watched other people's reaction. I have, because I get to look at everybody from time to time, whether or not people are paying attention. A lot of times they're not. Most of the time they are. I've seen people. In days gone by when I could peek, I'm during the praise. I've seen people stand there with their arms folded like this here during the praise and looking around. Well, see, that's his testimony in this room with us. That's his testimony. That's how I know him. I remember this fellow. He liked to talk about the Lord. He liked to talk about all that stuff. But something was wrong in his connection with the same God that he's talking about because he wasn't one that that seemed to want to live it. Now, he liked like talk about it. I didn't see it much, but that's his testimony. That's the way I knew him, and that's the way other people who would mention him occasionally, that's the way they knew him also. What do you think of when you think of politicians and their church membership? Well, see, you know how they are. Anybody who could fabricate a lie or tell a lie or take a bribe or be influenced and bought politically, is not a Christian. Now, you may act like one. You may go where you're approved of as one, but you are not one. Because a Christian would not do that. Somebody say amen. A Christian would not do that. How many of you know that people measure a preacher by, in some cases, whether or not they're liberal or conservative? I'm known to you in a certain way. I may not want to know all the ways I'm known, but I'm evaluated. I have a testimony here. You have an evaluation of me just as I have one of you. We both have a testimony to each other. Do you live what you preach? Do you preach what you live? Are you sincere in what you say or are you just preaching? One of the reasons church has good cohesiveness is that people are comfortable because of leadership. Where there's a lack of leadership, people begin to scatter and begin uneasy. But you know if somebody in a pulpit or anywhere else is a leader or not, by the things they say, by the things that they do, the way they conduct their affairs, you look at their family in church, you look at their life on the job, do they cheat, are they honest, are they sincere, do they take care of their workers, do they take advantage of people they sell things to or people they work for? If you work for anybody, you work for that person as though that person was the Lord, as you're serving the Lord. That's how God measures you. Amen? Amen? Like submission. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Well, your husband's not the Lord. Amen. But God says, I want to see your loyalty to me in how you respond and react to your husband. I want you to react to him my way. Let me show it to you. I'll show you my way. Wives, this is the way a woman lives. I want you to be like that to him. Well, he doesn't deserve it, didn't say he did. Didn't say he did deserve it. It Says nothing in here about equality. It just says you put your hands on this plow, here's the way you live. Not because somebody deserves it or it's not fair, but because it's required. You love this man. You submit to this man as you would unto the Lord. You love that woman. You be unto her what you promised with an oath you would be. Now, if you're not, that's your testimony to her. That's why she doesn't often have respect for her husband. She doesn't say a lot of nice things about him that she would like to say because he's not much. When he's home, he's a different breed of cat. I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah, he goes to church and he sings loud and people know he's loud and all this kind of stuff, but... When you get right down to it, you know, you can't depend on him. You know, I have an advisory council. A long time ago, when we were smaller than this, I just asked four or five guys to be a little advisory council. Scripturally, it says to give advice in the presence of two or three people and good counselors, there's wisdom. In matters of the church, I may not just like the president of the country. He doesn't know everything. Very little he knows about what's going on in the world, so he has a cabinet. He surrounds himself with men that are supposed to know as much as can be known about this, 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 the war, the economy, business. The, and so he puts these people around him, when he has a problem, he says, what should I do? He doesn't know what to do. I've heard people say, well, the president's not very smart. Doesn't have to be. Just hire smart people. You got the votes, they get the influence. And you pay them well, you pay them well. And a preacher, you know, you have these people that you want to give you advice. Let me say this and say it kindly. I'm not sure I trust the advice of everybody. I think people would probably accommodate me. One of the things I deeply respected about Brother I.D., there was never a time that he just was a yes man. If I'd say something he didn't agree with, he'd say, I don't agree with that. Sometimes I think I would say things to see if he would agree with it. I want to know if you're one of the real people or not. Are you really a thinking man? Because if you're going to just accommodate me, I don't need any advice from you. I want people that have a good testimony. Because again, I know people well, fairly well. I want somebody that I believe is a thinking person and has the good of the church in their heart also. People who want to think if they said things to me, I could take them at their word because I know that's what they mean. And you do it for legal purposes too. You know, we are a business. Because we're not an in incorporation, I guarantee you that. But I just watch. And so you do this because people have a testimony to you. And you tend to trust people whom you respect. People whose light has shone brightly and under duress and has shone brightly and no duress. People who seem to have things together at home and are a good testimony in the town from people that you know and you talk to. It's the kind of people you want to be around. This is the kind of people Christians ought to be. I don't think, well, who gets on the board next? Well, it's not something we vote on, it's not somebody you vote for, and I don't have room to make everybody on my advisory council. So it's not a popularity contest, trust me with that, it's not a popularity contest at all. My desire was to have people that I thought I could trust, people that I could depend on. See, your church life is important. This is the most important thing in my life, what I'm doing right now, right here. I don't care what kind of building I'm in. I don't care what kind of surroundings around me. This is the reason God put me on this earth. I'm here, and you're there. Here we are. But I can't think of anything else tonight, anything else in my life I'd rather do than what I'm doing. I can't think of anything that's more important tonight than what I'm doing. Obviously, my home is important to me and my relationship with my wife, but this is a call. It's not just me being called here to do what I'm doing, but I assume that God sent you here also because very few of you are from here. If I was to say how many of you are homebodies, indigenous Shelby Countyans, well, very few of you could hold up your hand. Everybody else came here from somewhere else hasn't always been easy to adjust to other people from other places one from this part one from down there, out there and over here and they come together and, and we do things differently wherever we came from and we talk differently we sound different and getting along hasn't been real easy people have said to me through the years you know your church doesn't seem to be friendly and I think of all the times we've had a, a crisis and how everybody came together and bail people out and help people I think well we're much better than you think it is As far as jumping up and down and being a bunch of diplomats, we're probably not that. But I know you the way I see you. And that's kind of the choices I make about who I want to give advice to me and counsel me are people like that. As church members and members one of another, we should be sincere and honest with each other, should we not? One of the worst things any of us could ever do with each other is lie. Is not tell the truth. That's one of the worst things that can happen is to lie, or distort the truth, or change a wrong and try to turn it around and make it a right, because if somebody lies to you, they cannot be your friend. Until this is rectified, they can't be your friend. How could you be a friend to me if I lie to you? How could you be? How could I trust you if you've lied to me? Yet, I think people have through the years lied. I can't prove it, but I think that they have. I don't go up and say you're a liar because I can't prove that. Turn to Acts 10. Especially in Scripture does it mention this in a complimentary way about your testimony to other people in the world. The testimony your church knows you by. Chapter 10, verse 1, there was a man in Caesarea called Cornelius a centurion of the band called the Italian band. I assume he was not Jewish. Verse 2, but he was a devout man. How do they know he was? Somebody knew it, didn't they? Luke wrote this. Luke must have known it. He wrote it. A devout man and one that feared God. How do you know he feared God? That was his testimony. People knew this man like this, with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. How do they know this? Because after a while it became evident. We don't walk around and take pictures of people giving alms or trying to catch them praying and say, he's praying, he's praying. He was just noted he was that kind of a person. He was devout, he wasn't ugly, he wasn't cool. He wasn't trying to be what the world's making people out to be. He was a different man. He prayed to God. He gave alms. He was devout. Somebody knew that about him. Also in the same book of Acts, chapter 23, concerning Paul when he was getting ready to go to Rome, in chapter 23, verse 1, And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, this is the Sanhedrin council, half Pharisees, half Sadducees, Half liberal, half conservative, put it that way. Democrat, Republican. Seemed like it's always been some distinction of some sort. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. Who said? Well, he said. Do you reckon he had? He had. You could probably ask anybody that was around him and knew him very long, especially in the church how he spent time with people, prayed with people, laid hands on people, taught, 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 taught the people. They knew that he was like that, that this was a man who, if he said it, that's what the man believes. That's what he said. That is exactly what you can trust him to do. That was his testimony in the church. Well, because that was such an unusual thing to say that nobody should say, I've lived in a good conscience since I got saved. Well, they ordered a guy there in verse 2, the high priest had somebody smack him in the mouth. What did he say, smite him on the mouth? Did your Bible say that? Today we just say somebody hit him in the mouth. Pow! Paul says, you have no right to do that. Why would you command somebody to hit me in violation of the law and so forth? He said, I didn't know he was a high priest. Paul said, I wouldn't have said that. You'd speak against the high priest Paul. I didn't know he was a high priest. High priest shouldn't tell somebody hit me in the mouth. Because I told him the truth. But that was his testimony. He couldn't deny that. Way, way back in the little book of 3 John, 3 John, right before Jude, all the way at the end. In verse 12, uh, chapter 1, 3 John. In verse 12. Demetrius hath good report of all men. Now that's a testimony. Has a good report of all men and of the truth itself. What about that? Demetrius has a good report of all men and of the truth. He lived what the word said. And people knew that. That's why they wrote this. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record. We know it too. And you know that our record is true. Now, there's somebody who had an outstanding testimony named Demetrius, named Cornelius, named Paul, who wasn't trying to live the life were just letting God change him, not trying to be anybody, just being what God's making you out to be. Having a loving attitude, changing your attitude, changing your ways, changing your speech. Some of the first people to know it, besides the home, will be those in the church, You start feeling more comfortable around honest people. People in the church who are trying to live right. This kind of warmth and companionship that we ought to have with each other because we're trying to live the life. We are here when the doors are open. We need this. We need to be here. That's why God sent me here. I assume that's why he sent you here. Why you wouldn't be here, I don't know. But I know God sent you here if God sent you here. Why would you want to stay home and watch TV when there's a church night? We only do it once a week at night. But you see, that's your testimony. That's your testimony. Now, doesn't the Bible say in Hebrews that I have to give an account? Based on what do I give an account? Isn't it not your testimony? I just call it as I see it. That's fair. What I see is what I believe. You can tell me whatever you want to tell me, but what you see speaks louder than what you say you are. I see you. I hear you. I know you're trying. I see you attempting to make things that were not good make them better. I admire that. We all should be in the business of keeping our hand on the plow and going the way God points us. But this is the way we're known in the church. The 139th Psalm says, Thou knowest my down sitting. In mine uprising, thou understandest my thought afar off. Which brings me to the fifth and final testimony that we all have. We have a testimony to the world. We have a testimony to our friends. We have a testimony to our family. We have a testimony to the church. And we have a testimony before God. Now, God knows everything. We can hide nothing. As he just said, I know you're down sitting and I know you're uprising. Solomon said these words in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9, For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. Can you think of anything that God doesn't know what you're thinking? You can't. You know what? I am fearfully and wonderfully made, am I not? I am put together in a special way. There's nobody else like me. There's nobody else like you. I know, thank God. But I am fearfully and wonderfully made, the way I function, the way I work. Just being here is a fearfully wonderful thing, known before there was a world when everything was void and there was nothing, not even light. Everything was without form. It was just uh, nothing out there. God knew me. God had assigned me a place in history, a place in life. At a certain time, at a certain place, as the globe keeps turning, as life on earth keeps going, there was a certain time and a certain place that God appointed me to come to this world, just like he did you. And there's a certain amount of significance to your being here and my being here. God did not call us to be meat for the devil. He did not send us here to die in the devil's playground. But He sent us here as people who need redemption because of Adam's sin. He assigned the day to save us, and he did that. How do you know God can do all this? He's sovereign. He's in complete charge of everything. There's a certain day that he did this and did that, and then he began to slowly open our eyes to see what we are, who we are, and who he is. And hopefully we realize that everything in my life is exposed. All things are naked before the Lord. There's nothing hidden. You can't go to the highest mountains and the lowest deep. There's no place you can go to escape God seeing you. What you're doing the thoughts that preceded the motivations, the lie you told, the sin you committed, everything was seen as you did it. The sad thing about it is there are people who know that this is true, but do it anyway. What do you say about that? They're not Christian for one thing. They act Christian, they talk Christian and all of that, but they are not Christian or else. A man who can know he's wrong and about to do wrong and do it anyway has no fear of God. Why would God allow you to do that? Well, now, wait a minute. I don't want to get over my head here or over our head. If people say, why did God allow Adam to sin? Seeing what sin did, That's kind of like you asking me, well, why did your child go out and wreck your car? Why did you let him wreck your car? I didn't let him wreck my car. I let him drive my car. He got to prove himself some way. I gave him the keys to the car, and I said, you be careful. Do not wreck my car. Stay out of trouble. Don't drink, and don't put other species of the human race in this car with you. And you come home at a certain time. I didn't tell him, hey, I want you to go wreck your car so we can grieve, okay? Are you with me? I gave him the keys, and he went out and drove the car. When he got out there, he decided he'd like to see how fast it would go from this sign to that sign. Now, I never did that, but I did, I did, I did, I did. My parents bought a 57 Chevy when I was in high school, and that was right. (laughs) But you'd go out, and everybody wanted to ride with you, and everybody wanted to see what it would do. My mother and dad never did say, well, the keys in the car, go see what it'll do. Never said that. Then why would I want to see what it'll do? Because I am determining the kind of person I'm going to be and the kind of person that God's either going to bless or judge. God didn't tell me to wreck a car. He didn't tell Adam to sin. Adam simply had a commission. I Don't eat of that particular tree. You say, well, could he have stopped him? Well, sure he could have. I could have stopped my kid from driving a car. Been easy. Just yanked the keys out of his hand or take the keys away from him, or don't give the keys to him in the first place. Now, we all make decisions down here. God puts us on this earth not to manipulate and control us so that we can't do anything but just be little zombies. We're not like that. He puts us here. He gives us his word. He let us be sinful people. Then he saves sinful people who are full of sinful ideas. Then he begins to cleanse us. More and more, little by little, he begins to cleanse us. Jesus said, now you're clean by the word. He said in Ephesians 5 about the church, he said, he's going to sanctify or set it apart and cleanse his church by the washing of water by the word. Now, if I don't get a hold of the word, I don't get clean. I just say like I was. But as the word begins to cleanse us, the things I once would have done, don't do that anymore. Don't need to do that anymore. Somebody said, you're too old. No, not that either. Not as brave, but just don't need that no more. Well, do you ever do it at all? None of your business. Just a little bit. But it's getting worked out. So you begin to see things that God knows you're down, sitting, you're uprising. God knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. If you respect him, now here we go with divine guidance. You respect God, do you fear him? Yes. Then don't sin. God isn't going to keep you from sinning if you insist on sinning. He certainly could. Just like he can cause you to walk in his ways. Remember that in Ezekiel 36? He could. But he said, this is the way, walk ye in it. My people are destroyed. Why? But they're destroyed. They shouldn't be, but they are. Because they chose not to learn. They chose to bypass. Bypass. But God knows the reasons you do that. He knows why you complain, why you grumble, why you mumble. God knows. We're all known by God more than any other way that a man could ever, ever be known. There is nothing about us that God doesn't know. And the thing about that is, once you know that, that's supposed to have a great suppressing influence on sin. That ought to cut it out. God sees me where I'm going. When you start hitting those buttons on there or the clicker to watch that, he knows why you're doing it. You know you shouldn't. You did it anyway. You did it anyway. You chose to do that. That girl you shouldn't look at when she walked by, you can't help first look. First look is shame on her. Second look, shame on you. So you make yourself, I'm not going to look. Keith and I were driving in a strip mall the other day at the place called the Summit. Terrible place to go to because I got too many places to shop. But anyway, we drove by that one place and I said to him, "I said I refuse to look at that store." Then there was one beside it that was equally as bad. I said, "And I refuse to dignify that place with a look." Just turned my head. Used to you know you look at the pictures and think, "Whoa," not anymore. See, God knows why you look. God knows why you think. God knows why you made decisions about what you talked about, what you said, whether you act the way you act this school, whether you cheat on your test, whether you're trying to be like other people and try to be cool because of insecurity. God has a remedy for all of that kind of stuff. And when we do it, he knows why we do it, because you can't hide anything from God. That's why his judgments are righteous and fair. You knew better, you did it anyway, and the great judge of all the earth who keeps records says you're guilty. You know he keeps records? Amen. Didn't he tell some people one time, you've robbed me? Mm-hmm. Didn't he? Amen. Well, he must have been keeping records. He said, you all have robbed me 1,500 years. said, you haven't given me what belongs to me. He knew. He knew why they didn't but that was never an excuse. We have a testimony before this world. We have a testimony before our friends. We have a testimony in this place. We have a testimony with God. He knows and he sees. Of nobody else can you say he knows if you're sleeping, he knows if you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. Nobody else knows that but God. Amen? Let me close with this. I pray this year in 2011, as we begin on these weekday nights and the things we'll teach on, I pray that we will make our testimony this year honest and righteous. That we'll be at least truthful and honest. If we're not doing well, then we'll admit it and then do right. But that'll be our testimony. So that we can all say at least they're trying. No, they're really trying. No, yeah, he's, they put their, no they're really getting into it. They really want to do better. In first Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11, and that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honestly toward them that be without and that you may have lack of nothing. May God bless all of you this year. May you lack nothing. May you be blessed when you come in this room. May you be blessed when you go out. May everything you put your hand to this year, may you be determined to do it well and to be blessed. May you be the best employee that your boss or bosses could have. and May you be the best employer and boss that you could be. May you ever be mindful of the fact that God is watching everything, listens to every conversation, knows everything that can be known about us, and for those things we must give an account. May we be able to stand before him as, Paul, I've lived in all good conscience before God up to this day. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Father, I do pray that you'll bless us that way, that you will bless these, your people. You have not saved us because we were talented beyond the ordinary. You could have saved a thousand people besides us, but you saved us. Now may grace find its way and lodge itself in our hearts. May we begin to receive from you those wonderful moments of encouragement, edification, as well as guidance and correction that makes us be the kind of people that you say in the end, well done, thou good and faithful servant. May this be, especially this year, Lord, may this be our testimony. Grant that kind of conviction, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.